0: Kids, way to go, Lydia. Um couple things on just kind of on that. If, if you've been here, we, we do this. We've done this for a long time. We, we love to have our kids up here. Uh, we do this for a couple of reasons. We want our kids to feel comfortable and safe up here. I was talking with my wife this week about when I was a kid, I remember the pastor's office was like this holy sacred place that you didn't go into unless you were invited. And then like when you were invited, it, you know, is that good? So I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm thankful that our, our students have Sunday school in the pastor's office, even if it's under a reno, renovation project at the moment, but like still, hey, it, this it's just a building, right? It's, it's just a building, that's all it is. But I want our kids to feel comfortable here. I want them to know that we value them, we love them. We want them to learn and be a part. And then on the backside of it, um, We want to encourage family devotionals. Parents, do this with your kids, and it is chaotic. Like, it is kids crawling all over you and messing with you and not always paying attention, but uh, I I continue to hear stories of people who, they did this, and then they get to their kid's graduation, and they say, kids, what was the best thing your parents ever did for you? Is man, my parents sat down and taught me the Bible. Even when they thought I didn't care, I didn't want to do it, that had the most benefit. So um, that's why we do what we do, and and I, I value it. I think it's a wonderful thing. I have been the one to do it. I love doing it, absolutely with all my heart. Cade and I were talking at uh, basketball games yesterday and he goes, Mr. Matt, why do you always go up there and talk so long on Sundays? When I get to do it oh, he, he went upstairs but but man I uh, asked Kate if he wanted to do it someday, and he said yes, so hey hey, here you know maybe that 's the next generation coming on uh but we have a lot of people you you are able to do that, and that's that 's why uh Lydia is doing it that 's why we 're going to hand it off we 're going to one of the things I want to try and do this year is just kind of rotate through people um give kids consistency with a person for a little while but then let's let 's y- let you you be the church you you teach you equip that's that 's what we do right so Okay uh kids four and five year olds have at this point gone upstairs, so if, if you're new here and you're like, "Wait, does my kid go or not go that's that's who that's for so okay, all right, got that done. uh Matthew chapter five, uh, the book of Matthew chapter five, we started um Last week? No, no, we started like three weeks ago on a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and last week we kind of dove into the Beatitudes uh, a little bit in depth, and we're walking through them. We're going to do two per week. So we started last week, two this week, two the next week, two the next week, and then we'll be done with the Beatitudes, and we'll just keep rolling right on into the Sermon on the Mount is our is our trajectory. That's where we're headed. So today we're going to look at verses five and six, which talk about meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But before we do that, what I want to do is I want to read through the entire Beatitudes, verses 2 through 12, uh, because as we're going to see today, and as we continue to walk through this, is these are not independent of one another. They build one upon another. So, so every week we'll read all of them. Uh, I'll do a recap of, of last week, and then, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. So hopefully I've talked long enough. You have made it to the book of Matthew chapter 5. I'll read these 12 verses and we'll pray, or 10 to 11 verses and we'll pray. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and he taught them, his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Spirit of God, this morning we ask that you would be our teacher that you would guide us, that you would open our minds and our thoughts to be able to peer into the depths of the majesty of who you are. Jesus, shape us today. God, our desire is to grow as disciples. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. God, we want to glorify you today by growing as disciples. And that that's your desire for us. So God, do that work Spirit of God, do that work today in us. Shape us to be more like you, to look like you. God, may your kingdom grow in our hearts and in our minds today. God, do this for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the main point of my sermon today, and it's been the main point last week, and it's going to be the main point for the next two weeks, because the Sermon on the Mount is a unified thing, not one individual thing, is this. A truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. A truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. And today we're gonna unpack that statement a little bit further. And my hope is that we leave here with a renewed sense of this submission and dependence on the king who exemplifies for us, verses five and six, meekness and righteousness. So before we go into meekness and righteousness, let's talk about blessedness. What does it mean to be blessed? We talked about this last week. And I remember uh, when I was a kid, there was a family that they don't live here anymore. Um, they, are, they were farmers and they had two kids, a son and a daughter, very godly people, um, love and admire them, they've, they've moved away. And their son and daughter go off to college and they get married and they, they marry some godly people and the son moves back and begins to farm with his dad. And then the daughter marries a guy who wants to farm and she moves back and, and, his, and her husband begins to farm with the dad. And their farm grows and their success they're really good farmers and, and they have their family together. And I used to think, man, that's blessed. Man, they got it, right? They got family, they got fortune, they've got health, they've got spiritual well-being. Man, they are, they are a godly, good family. They are just so blessed, Well, is that what Jesus is talking about here in these uh, 12, 11 verses? Is, Is that what he's getting at? Is that what blessed means, right? That one word is repeated over and over and over in every one of the Beatitudes. Well, last week, I attempted to show that that's not what blessed means. This is what blessed means. What Jesus is talking about here is a deep sense of inner joy and contentment and satisfaction. It is not something based off of circumstances, right? Doesn't matter if your family moves back or doesn't move back because then if the kids move away, does that mean you're no longer blessed? If your farm goes to pot, does that mean you're no longer blessed? No, being blessed is not subject to your circumstance. Rather, it's an objective state that God declares of you when you embody these characteristics of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're going to see as we study these characteristics that you can't just put them on right? You can't just decide uh, today, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be poor in spirit today. I'm, I'm just going to be meek. I'm, I'm going to be a peacemaker, right? We're, we're going to see that, that these aren't just something that all of a sudden we try to add to our life, because what happens when we do that, when we say, I want to become there, I want to put this on, what we're really doing is we're making a law for ourselves. And as you grow into the Beatitudes, they get a lot more difficult, right? So, so I'm going to be poor in spirit today. I can do that, but I'm going to be poor in spirit and I'm going to mourn my sin and I'm going to be meek and I'm going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You you start to add all that. And do you see how oppressive that is? You see how much of a weight that is? That's so, so the Beatitudes then are not something that we just add onto our lives. These are characteristics that God works out in you. There's something that God does we talked last week about being poor in spirit and being poor in spirit is to recognize our inability to please God. So we talked about last week, when you come face to face with God, what do you have to offer? And if you'll remember, if you were here, I had everybody grab their notepad or list. I made you number one through five. And I said, okay, list all five things that you come to God with, that it makes you part of the A-team. God's blessed to have you because of these five things. And I ruined a lot of people's journals last week, and I'm sorry for that. That would have bothered me, so I won't do that again. The point of that, though, is to show that when we come face to face with God, we have nothing to offer. I was talking with someone this week and they mentioned how the prophet Ezekiel was taken to a valley of dry bones and he's told to preach and bring life. And and Paul in the New Testament, what does Paul say of us? He says, we're that valley of dead bones, right? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how God describes us. So we are completely and totally unable to approach God by any act that we put on. But Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, God in his mercy saw our state and he graciously saved us. He made us alive together with Christ. So now, now when we walk in obedience... When we submit to the King and when we depend on the King, Christ works in us. And when Christ works in us, we see what we are. We're poor in spirit. And when Christ works in you, do you know what you are? You're blessed. We're blessed because it's Christ who's working in us. It's Christ who's growing us. It's Christ who's shaping us to be more like he is. So does that make sense how being blessed is not, it's not something that's going on around my life? It's not my bank account, it's not my finances, it's not my family, it's not my health. Talked about Job a second ago. It's not my health and well-being. Being blessed is God is doing a work. It is something that happens when you submit to and depend on the king to establish his kingdom in your heart. That's why we're blessed. When the king is establishing his kingdom in and among us, do you know what we have? A really deep sense of inner joy and inner contentment and satisfaction. Why? Because we have the king. And what kind of king is he? He's a good king. He's a kind king. He's a gracious and merciful king. You want to see who the king is? Look at the Beatitudes. That's what king he is. So that's what blessed means and with that understanding let's now turn to see what life under the king looks like. We've already talked about the first attribute it's poor in spirit and that means to be keenly aware that we're spiritually destitute and entirely dependent on the grace of God and when you are entirely dependent and when you do submit to the king do you know what you were promised? The end of verse three the kingdom of heaven. And then we turn from that, and once you've recognized how poor in spirit you are, you can't help but mourn your sin, right? That's the second thing. As John Stott said, it's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it, and it's another thing to grieve and mourn over it. When we truly recognize our state, what we do is we grieve. We grieve like we have lost somebody. That's how we feel about our sin in our life, is it just causes us to weep like we have lost something significant. Sin breaks our heart, both, both on a personal level, but also on a corporate level. We look in our own lives, and we see problems. And then I look in your life, and my wife's life, and my family's life, and my church's life, and my community's life, and what do I see? Man, I see sin. And what does it cause me to do? Say, oh, God, have mercy. That's what mourning is. But look and see how good this king is. When we mourn our sin, what, do, what does God promise you'll be comforted. You'll find comfort in the one who took away our sin and paid for it on the cross. We can walk forward in confidence and in comfort knowing that one day the king will return in victory and sin will reign no more. Now that's the first two verses of the Beatitudes. That's, that's a quick, fast, 80 mile an hour drive by to kind of take a quick look at them. And there's a lot more to unpack that even last week we didn't get to. But hopefully we have a grasp now that allows us to move forward. So what is the third thing that's true about life under the king? Well, it's that we're happy and meek. Let's look at Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'd be kind of curious to know what comes to your mind when you hear the word meek. Who was the last person that you described as meek? It's really not an attribute, I think, that we tend to run towards, or think about, or even desire, right? So we're, what, getting towards the end of January, backside, I don't know how you're doing on your, on your uh, New Year's resolutions, right, where we're chasing after these goals. Usually we make resolutions, and what do we want to be? Man, I, mean, I want to be more joyful, I want to be more content, I, I want to be more gracious to people, I want to work harder, but when was the last time meekness was on your list of things you wanted to become? It's, it's, not, it's not something we chase after, typically, Right? Why? Why is meekness not something that we tend to pursue? Maybe it's because we don't understand what meekness is, right? I think, I think we tend to uh, associate meekness with weakness. So I just got on my computer and I just typed in the dictionary app and I pulled it up and said, what does meekness mean? Here's, here's the dictionary definition. Meekness is a quiet, gentle, and easily imposed on person. That's what we want to be, right? Gentle... Quiet and easily imposed on. Sometimes we tend to associate meekness with just someone being nice or maybe easygoing. But what we don't tie weakness to or meekness to is strength. We we tend to keep those two things separate from one another. In fact, in Jesus' culture, in Greco-Roman society, that word meekness was looked down upon because in Jesus' time, right, you think about the Roman Empire, what were they after? Man, they were about growing the empire. They were about establishing rule, about b- building all these new things. Philosophers, they were thinkers, they were writers, artists. I mean, they were really about growing culture. And meekness doesn't fit that mold. Now, church, I don't think really, even though we're really far removed, we're really that far removed. I, I, th- I think our society tends to have a goal-driven life, right? We just talked about New Year's resolutions, Think about my kids, right? Even at a young age, they are in AR program. Kiddos, any kiddos in here in accelerated reading, AR? How we doing on meeting our goals? Our kids got to meet their goals every year so they can go to the AR party, right? That's, we're, we're in a goal-driven society. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. In fact, I think having goals and progressing is a good thing and even a God thing. I think it's what God desires for us is, is to grow into who he wants us to be, but we don't tend to associate meekness with a goal-driven person, So what then is meekness? Let's define the term. If you've been around here, at some point you might have heard me, as I heard this definition a long time ago, back when I was in high school, I heard someone describe meekness as strength under control. That's what meekness means. Strength under control. That was the definition I've always had. Now, is that what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew chapter 5? Is he talking about strength being under control? I think that definition is helpful. But I think it's really important that we clarify exactly what that means. Because when I think about strength under control, what I think about is I think about me. And I think about my ability to communicate or to teach or to lead or maybe to be stubborn and want to do things my way. And and strength under control is to take all those strengths, but use self-control with them, right? Like, I'm not going to force my way on you. I'm not going to force you to think or be or do what I want to do. Instead, I'm going to have self-control. I'm going to be nice and I'm going to let you have your way. That's that's typically what I think of when I think of strength under control, but that's not what meekness is. In order to understand meekness and strength under control, we have to look at this word in the context of the Beatitudes. So what have we just talked about? We've just talked about being poor in spirit. We've talked about mourning. So we've recognized that we're poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, what strength do you have? We don't have any. And when we mourn over sin, we see we've got nothing to offer. So what then is our strength under control? The only strength we have is Christ in us. And if Christ is our strength, then what is the control? Well, the control is the spirit of God. So to be ruled by Christ under the control of the spirit, I mean, that's what God has designed you for. That's what he has created you for. And that's why our main point of the whole sermon series for the Beatitudes is this, is that a truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. Because you can't just decide, I'm going to be meek today. Because to be truly meek means that you have to have Christ in you. It is dependent on him. It means that you submit to and depend on his rule and reign over your life. That's where your strength comes from. Your strength comes from Christ being in you. And when you allow him to control you, both your attitude and your emotion and your will and your desires, when you take all of those things and you make them submissive to God, do you know what you begin to embody? Meekness. It's not just some sort of internal thing that we put on, but it's something that God works in us. It's a spirit that begins to grow and develop as we look to and submit to and depend on him. And meekness has not just internal changes in us, in our spirit, it has external ramifications. Uh, Lloyd Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm using his commentary as kind of a primary, primary source as I study through the Beatitudes, he said in his commentary is that the man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. That's, that's what a meek person looks like. This morning, we open, uh, Will opened us with Psalm 37. And Psalm 37 is actually a picture of meekness. And I love it because it ties meekness and righteousness together. So real quickly, keep your finger in Matthew 5 flip back to Psalm 37. I want to just kind of like I did last week, I want to run through Psalm 37 and I'm not going to read the verses. I'm just going to kind of pick some things off of each one and it's going to give us a picture of meekness, what the meek man looks like. We did this last week in Isaiah 61. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 61 talks about the meek man and carries some of those attributes as well. But this week, we're going to let Psalm 37 be our interpretive lens as we look at meekness, okay? So, Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers. So, what do we see in that? And we see that the meek man doesn't freak out because of evil going on around him. This makes me think of 1 Peter 2:23. Jesus, right? Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, back in Psalm 37, the meek man, he doesn't worry about evil or wrong that's happening around him. He doesn't worry about accusations. He doesn't, doesn't worry about people reviling him or, or abusing him. Instead, he trusts God, knowing he's going to be just. The meek man, in verse 3, he trusts in the Lord, and he does good. The meek man dwells in the land. He's faithful. He's faithful. The meek man in verse four delights in the Lord and he commits his way to the Lord. In verse five, the meek man walks in righteousness. He is still before the Lord and waits patiently. The meek man refrains from anger and avoids wrath. He delights in peace. He doesn't envy others. This whole psalm is set in the context of the righteous being persecuted and taken advantage of. And then you see uh, in verses 10 through 14 or so, uh, we see that the meek man doesn't take advantage of people. Instead, he's content in little things. Better is the little that the righteous has, so he's content in little, than the abundance of many wicked. Now, right, this is just the first 16 verses. We don't have time to run through the rest of the psalm, but this whole psalm shows us that the meek man isn't living under his own strength. He's not living under his own control, but what's he doing? He is living in submission to and dependence on the Lord. He's trusting God to handle all things in life, to provide for him, to make all things right. He's trusting God to be just. He's trusting God to satisfy him and enable him to be content in all the things that he has. That's what meekness looks like. You see, David wrote this Psalm to encourage his soul, saying, soul, soul, don't freak out. No, so look to the one who is meek. You see, a small group this week, we were trying to work through defining what meekness is. I've wrestled with this word. It's, like I said, it's not something we're used to thinking through or talking about. And Barry made a comment that I thought was really good. He said, when you apply the word meekness to God, your mind can stop. Just full stop. You want to think about what meekness looks like? Just think about God for a minute. Why? Because in God, you see meekness and perfection as you sit and dwell on God's character and the ways in which he, he works and how he exists, you see meekness. Think for a second about the Trinity. You have God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, right? But they act as one. And God the Father, he, what does he do to the Son? He elevates him. And what does God the Son do to God the Father? He submits to him and he depends on him. We talked about the high priestly prayer this morning uh, in Sunday school and how uh, Jesus says, Lord, sanctify them in your truth. Man, he's depending on God to do the work right? He is submitting to the Father. And what does the Spirit do? Man, the Spirit comes when the Son sends him. And what does the Spirit do? He points back towards the Son who's glorifying the Father. Do you see continual submission and dependence of meekness existing in the Trinity? That's what meekness is. So, so if that's, if that's what meekness is, right? We're sitting here studying these beatitudes. This is good. Uh, we've talked about blessedness. We, when we are meek, we are blessed. But but we want to be meek. So, so if this isn't something we put on, how, how do we become meek? What do we do with this? God, how do you work this out in us? Man, God in his mercy gave us his word. How do we display the meekness found within the Trinity? Well, a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells us, a nice guy that he is. What does he say? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle what that word gentle is in the greek it's the same word as meek for i am gentle i am meek and i am lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls jesus tells us take my yoke upon you so so you yoke up with jesus what what is a yoke and we live in agriculture world everyone in here i think knows what a yoke is what do they what do they use a yoke for put two, tie two oxen together to pull a plow. What they would do is they would take a weaker and untrained oxen and they would put him with a stronger trained one to learn how to work. That's why Jesus says, come and learn from me. So to yoke up with Jesus means to recognize that you are weak, you are untrained, you are wild, you are incapable of doing this work on your own. Poor in spirit. It is to mourn your state and then is to look at the one who walks perfectly. You watch him, you step when he steps, you step how he steps Think about a group of people, right? You've got to be kids. You've probably heard your parents say this. Be careful who your friends are, because your friends are going to shape you, right? When you hang out with a group of people, you begin to look like them. You get, begin to act like them, think like them, talk like them, do what they do, say what they say. That's what our friends do. They influence us. Just like when we hang out with a group of people, when we hang out, when we yoke up with Jesus, what do we do? We begin to look more like him. So, practically speaking, what do we do? What are the actual steps? It's not complicated. Church is through the spiritual disciplines. It is through submitting our time to him. It is through depending on him to provide for all our needs. And when we submit our time to him, we say, Lord, I don't have time to do this, but this morning I'm going to stop and I'm going to meet with you through your word. I'm going to stop today, God, in the middle of my business, and I'm going to meet with you in prayer. I'm going to make regular fellowship with the church a part of my life. Yeah, I'm going to be here Sunday mornings, but I'm going to also be here when the church is gathered. When the church is doing things, I want to be a part. I'm gonna sing to him. Then sings my soul, how great thou art. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna sing. I'm gonna fast. I'm gonna stop and remember that I'm not with the bridegroom now, but one day he's coming. I'm gonna make myself hungry to remember what I truly should hunger and thirst for. Then I'm gonna tell others about him. I'm gonna share with him about the meek Lord who has saved me. And as I do that, do you know what I'm gonna encounter? I'm gonna encounter the meek God saving someone else. Martin Lloyd Jones, in his sermon on meekness, he made the statement if we aren't a shock to the world, our Christianity is deficient. A truly meek person would be an anomaly. He would shock the world. Our community wouldn't know what to do with that kind of guy. Look at Jesus, they didn't know what to do with him. Church, does this characteristic describe you? Are you meek? Does the way you live, does the way you talk, does the way you give or submit to or lead or interact with others, does it shock them? If not, I think the harder question is, is, is our Christianity deficient? What does Jesus promise the meek person? They will inherit the earth. Who are inheritances given to? It's Children. Paul tells us that for those who are in Christ, they've been adopted. They've become co-heirs with him. So we are promised that when Christ comes back to rule and reign, what do we inherit? The earth. It's not the strong who overcomes. The Roman Empire didn't last, right? It's not the emperors. It's not the dictators who rule the earth. It's those who submit to and depend upon the Lord that will reign with him in his kingdom forever. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Church, when we live poor in spirit, mourning our sin, walking in meekness, you know what the natural progression is? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, we get to this time of the sermon, and I know what happens. I know what everybody in here is doing. What's for lunch? Right? You're starting to get hungry. You're thinking, is it Pasadita today or is it Espanola? Should I invite somebody, or should we just go out together as a family? Is there enough leftovers so that we don't have to spend money today? My kids have had enough. I'm just going home, right? No? Anybody? Is that just us? Anybody else? I probably shouldn't have brought this up, because now all you're going to be thinking about is food for the rest of the sermon. Right? Being hungry is something that we all can relate to, and maybe even feel in the moment. There's donuts in the back, I think, unless my kids ate them all. Um, We can be hungry. We know what it's like to be hungry. We know what it's like to be thirsty. Here I am. I don't know. I'm thirsty for a second. You know what's interesting about this phrase? What, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, man, my disciples, they want to be righteous. They, they just, they want it, they like it, they think it's good, they want, to, they want that. What? Mm-mm. No, Jesus uses some really strong words. They will hunger. They will thirst for righteousness. This makes me think of Psalms 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirst for God, for the living God. A true disciple of Jesus is panting. He is longing. He is craving for the righteousness of God. His soul thirst for God. You might've heard me tell the story. uh, I went on a mission trip when I was in college to, to Peru and we went like, in the jungle, man. It was in the jungle. We flew into Lima. We got another plane. We flew over the Andes it's Andes mountain range. Is that right? flew over that mountain range and landed in another city. And then we got in a pickup and I rode in the back of a pickup for eight hours on a wood, on a dirt road. Do you know how comfortable that was? It wasn't, it wasn't comfortable for eight hours. And then we spent the night and we got on a boat and we went two days upriver in this little boat to these Indian villages up in the jungle, man. I mean, when I say backwoods, we were backwoods. It's called, I think it's called extreme missions. I don't even know if that organization still exists. We were way up there. You know what we ate during that time frame? It was like 10 days of in the jungle. Do you know what we ate? You know those little, if you, anybody, I don't know if there's any hikers, mountain climbers in the room or A.J. Hunter, right? Those little bags that you like heat the water and you pour it in when you go on, on big hunting trips and stuff like that, that's what we ate. Sometimes we'd eat local cuisine. That did not end well, don't do that. Uh, we, so, so we would do that, right? How do you think I felt after, I don't know, seven, 10 days in the jungle of eating of prepackaged frozen food? Man, I was hungry. Y'all, I was so hungry. All I wanted was a McDonald's greasy cheeseburger. So bad. We got back into Lima and there's a McDonald's there. And like, we don't care, Like I don't care what kind of five-star dining there is. We're going to McDonald's today. The whole team was that way. And we get to McDonald's, we order a cheeseburger. It was the worst food I've ever had. It was not a McDonald's cheeseburger. It was awful. I was starving. I was hungry, right? We can relate and understand hunger and thirst. Jesus isn't talking about food. He's talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. What does that mean? What does it look like for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, all the smart people, the theologians, when they look at righteousness in the scriptures, they tend to see righteousness in two different ways. Okay, So, so there is positional righteousness, the righteousness of justification, and then there is personal righteousness. Let's, all right, positional, personal, what, what does this mean? Let's, let me unpack it. So the righteousness of justification. What's, what's Jesus talking about here? This is what you receive when you've been justified. Okay, we've already talked about you come to God with nothing but your own brokenness, that we're not right with God, but God in His mercy sends Christ to bear the penalty of our sin. And when we turn away from wickedness, we repent, and we believe in the work of Jesus, we are justified. And God, in that moment, what does He give us? When, When we believe in Jesus, what does God give us? He gives us all the righteousness of Christ. He looks at us, and how does he see us? I mean, he sees us as perfectly righteous. Positionally, God looks at us, we're positionally righteous, all right? That's the justification, that's uh, righteousness of justification, all right? What is the righteousness of personal, personal righteousness, personal holiness? Well, here in a few weeks, we're gonna get to Matthew chapter five, verse 20, which Jesus says this, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, What we see in that verse is that the person who is called to a disciple longs to walk in obedience and submission to God in His ways. Positionally, we're made righteous, but now we're called to pursue living out what God has called us to be. Think maybe the best illustration between positional and personal righteousness that I can think of. There's a lot. Is this? I think about adoption. Okay. So, so when you when a child is adopted, a judge signs a piece of paper that says you are part of this family right? Doesn't matter what that kid does, man, he, he's part of our family now. He is it. But then what does the kid do? Does he, does he do what he has always done, or does he begin to change and, and begin to live like the family, and obey the family rules, and talk like the family does, and walk like the family does, and do what the family does? Does that, so, so, so the righteousness of justification is, is the judge signing an article that says part of the family. Personal righteousness that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5 is pursuing that. Now, This doesn't just constitute a craving for personal holiness. Verse five, most people think when they look at it, uh, or verse six, I'm sorry, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, is is kind of the turning point in the Beatitudes. There are some who think that the first half of the Beatitudes is primarily focused internally, and the second half is focused externally. As D.A. Carson says, these people hunger, the disciples, they hunger and thirst, not only that they may be righteous, in other words, that they may wholly do God's will from the heart, but that justice may be done everywhere. All unrighteousness grieves them and makes them homesick for the new heaven and earth, the home of righteousness. Satisfied with neither personal righteousness alone or social justice alone, they cry for both. In short, what they long for, what to hunger and thirst for righteousness means, is to long for the advent, for Jesus to come back. When we taste pictures of it now, we long for it to come. So, what does that mean? That they may wholly do God's will from the heart. What is personal righteousness. Man, it means that I'm going to live in the family of God according to the commands of God and the ways of God. We don't look at the law of God as something bad. Preached on Galatians nine months ago. Man, the law of God, what does it do? It shows us our inability to come to God as we talked about poor in spirit, but the law of God also shows us how to live according to God's word God's in God's world, according to God's word, walking in God's ways. So, so then what, what is pursuing righteousness? What is it to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's to read the Psalms. It's to read the book of God and go, man, God, I want what you have created this earth to be, but I am sick and tired of it not looking like this. I'm sick of this brokenness and of this sin that continues to reign both in my heart and in my family and in my church and my community and in my world. The righteousness Jesus is referring to here in this verse is a growing of personal holiness it's a longing to see the kingdom come here on earth and what happens what happens when you long for that man I'm hungry God I crave it I am so sick of my own selfishness I'm so sick of the brokenness that I encounter every day in every relationship in every communication what does God promise to that person They shall be satisfied. Ah, Satisfaction. Notice the verb here. They shall be. It's a passive verb. It's not something you do. It's something you're given. You see, as you hunger and thirst for righteousness and as you pursue personal holiness, living out the kingdom, do you know what God does? God satisfies you. He blesses you. Do you want joyfulness? Do you want contentment? Do you want satisfaction? Then submit to the king and walk in his ways. Long for what he longs for. Walk where he walks. Step where he steps. Step when he steps. And you know what he will do? He will give you the desires of your heart. Because your desires at that point align with his desires. Your satisfaction doesn't come from your pursuit. It doesn't come from me wanting these things. What your satisfaction comes from is from God. Dr. Chuck Quarles says, if the disciples were personally responsible for the righteousness that grows out of their pursuit of God, they would deserve the glory for it. So the righteousness that we get when we pursue God is not something that we just grow in. No, it's something that God gives us. And because God gives us it, what does God get? Man, He gets glory. You want to see the glory of God? Pursue God. Walk according to his ways. Submit to him. Depend on him. The righteousness that comes from submitting and depending on the king isn't self-earned. It's something God does. And since it's something that he does, you know it's something that will last. God will satisfy you with his righteousness for your good and his glory. You shall be satisfied. Church, the question that flows from this is what, are you hungry and thirsty for? I'm not talking about lunch here in the next 15 minutes. Maybe another way of rephrasing this question is to look at the promise. What satisfies you? Last week I mentioned as application the four steps of reflect, repent, rejoice, and reset. Reset. Take a minute and reflect on your past week. Think about it. Past Seven days from last Sunday to now. What are the things that have brought you satisfaction? Maybe another way to even look at that is, is what? Where are you discontent? Where, where are you dissatisfied? Like, where is your struggle in your heart and in your mind? If you, if you start there, maybe that will help you see what you're actually hungering and thirsting for. As you look over the past week, have you been discontent because the amount of cash or lack thereof in your bank account? Would you be more content, students, if a certain group of friends or approval of a particular person, if you had that? Would your soul be at rest if you had a different job or maybe even a job at all? Or maybe if people would just recognize you for a minute for all the things you do, maybe then I would be satisfied. Maybe on the flip side, you can look back at your life for your week and you can say, man, I'm content because I finally got that pickup i worked so hard for. Whew. Man, I'm content because I've been given that promotion. I've been content because I've been acknowledged. I've been content because I can grow my business. Church, the challenge of this question is, is when we find the things, we begin to look and see the things that bring us contentment and satisfaction. You know what that's revealing to us? It's revealing idols. It's revealing the things that we worship that are not God. Church, when we find our satisfaction in the things of this world, what we've done is we have taken good things and we've made them into God things. As you reflect on this week, the question for you is this, what are you finding contentment in? What do you need to repent of? Church, our world is hungry for happiness. I just want my kids to be happy. Man, if that's what makes them happy, let my kids be happy. I just want happiness. The world's starving. Seek righteousness and be satisfied. Church, a truly blessed life is found in submission to and dependence on the king. So the questions that come from this is, are you blessed? Is Christ in you? Is he Lord over your life? Have you submitted to and are you depending on him? Do you mourn over the sin that still sticks to you? Do you mourn over the sin that exists in our world? Do you have a right understanding of yourself that forces you to walk in meekness depending on the strength from Christ under the control of the Spirit? What are you longing for? What are you seeking to satisfy you? What is bringing you joy and contentment? Church, the Beatitudes show us that the call of a disciple is not easy. What Jesus has for you is not an easy call. In fact, it's impossible. It's a work of God that happens to you as you submit to and depend on him. Church, may we become a people who are poor in spirit. May we become a people who mourn sin. May we become known as a people who are meek. May we be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. We have this week, I have this week, found contentment and satisfaction in the things of this world. Lord Jesus, I haven't looked to you in all things, I haven't submitted to or depended on you. Instead, God, in a lot of ways, I have leaned on my own understanding, I have not acknowledged your ways. And God, I am sorry for that. Spirit of God, may we be a spirit people. This call is hard. I can't do it, Jesus. I can't. I'm, I'm poor in spirit, Lord, coming to you, asking you to help. Lord, help me to recognize who I am. Help us to recognize who we are and our inabilities. God, that we bring nothing to the table, that all that is good from us comes from you. God, help me to hate my wicked ways. Help us to hate how we walk in sin, how we seek things of this world. God, and as we do that, grow us in meekness. God, may we crave righteousness. May we long for it. May we seek after it. Help us to submit and depend on you by giving up time, by giving up talent, by giving up treasures, and looking to you saying, God, satisfy us. And God, I know that your word promises us, as we do that, you will. You will satisfy us. So Lord, today, satisfy us. Satisfy us with Jesus. May we look and behold the Lamb of God who was slain for us. And may we be satisfied. Do this, Jesus, for your good, for our good, and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Church, let's stand and sing.